Lord, this is a familiar moment, but it is a holy moment. Lord, this is a familiar moment, but it is a supernatural moment. So Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to come and give us ears to hear your truth, your word. God, we need a revelation of Jesus Christ. Would you come and reveal Jesus Christ to us? God, we could not know you unless you would come and show us yourself, unless you would come and speak to us. And you've done that in your word. You've done that by the work and person of your son. And so would you continue to speak? God, we have great confidence in this moment. You have spoken. You've spoken by your son. You've spoken by your word. And so God, we come to you with great confidence, expecting to hear from you, expecting to receive from you. So fill, fill our hearts now with faith to hear your word and faith to respond to your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hosea 12, verse 8. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Luke twelve thirty-five through 38 Stay dressed for action, and keep your lamps burning, And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table 
and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. So imagine you get a call from a friend and she's, she's just begging you for help over the phone. She's, she's telling you that her husband is having a serious mental health crisis. He's in a really bad state. She says he's not eating. He's, he's not going to work. He won't even come in the house right now. He's just completely delusional. So you rush over to their place and you're just, just appalled by what you see. This poor man, he's in the backyard. He's completely naked. He's sitting in the mud. He's just covered in filth and he's making these nasty little mud pies. There's these dirty infected sores across his face around his eyes and flies are buzzing around his head. They're like so swollen he can barely see. You, you, you get over closer to him and the stench is just overwhelming. It makes you gag. And you can kind of break his attention from those mud pies. And you're like, dude, we got to get you cleaned up. You're in a bad way. You need clothing. You need, you need medicine. You're really sick. Come on. Please, let us help you. But to your astonishment and horror, this guy smiles at you and dismisses you, clinging to his delusions. Oh, thanks. I'm, I'm doing great here. Uh, I actually just won the lottery, so I'm going to retire early. I'm just counting my millions here. Really, I'm good. I don't need anything. That's a really disturbing picture. But it's less disturbing than the picture Christ gives us in his word here. Now, if I came across somebody in that state, it would, that would wreck me. But I think it's, it's, a, it's a, just a little taste of what Jesus is describing in this passage. Jesus is coming to a church. He's bringing them grave concerns. He's telling them they're in serious danger, but they don't even see the problem. They don't see the danger. But just as importantly, they don't see what they're missing out on. Jesus has beautiful and wonderful things that he wants to extend to them, and they, they just cling to their delusions. So I believe Jesus wants us to receive two things from his word here this morning. There's a declaration in this passage, and there's an invitation in this passage. The declaration is a declaration of love, and the invitation is a beautiful invitation of fellowship. So first, Jesus wants us to receive this declaration. As his people, he wants us to humbly agree with the way that he sees us from his perfect vantage point. He wants us to hear and accept and respond to the way he observes us and what he advises us to do about it. And then second, he wants us to, to joyfully receive his invitation. His invitation is to enjoy being with him today and forever. But you cannot have that invitation unless you accept, first, his declaration. So we're going to look at that declaration first, but I think some background information is going to be helpful. So let's just zoom out for a moment and consider the book we're reading. Our main text, again, is from Revelation chapter 3. And, and I think we would all agree that Revelation is a book that can be difficult to understand at times. I think every one of us, myself included, if we read through Revelation, we're going to come away with questions, points of confusion. Uh, the majority of us have read things in Revelation uh, or have heard people talk about Revelation in ways that were disturbing to us, in ways that were unsettling to us. Now, on the one hand, I think uh, 
I think we should be disturbed and unsettled by God's word more often, not less often. But not all of that has been good, all right? <laughs> so let's just try to put that baggage aside for a minute. We can all agree together that God's perspective is the perspective we want to have for the book of Revelation, right? There are opinions everywhere. Opinions are far too easy to come by. But when we come to the book of Revelation, we primarily want God's view to be our view. And we don't have to guess about God's view of Revelation. If we go back to the very beginning of Revelation, just look at the third verse, Revelation 1-3. Revelation 1-3. Listen to this. This is what God's view of Revelation is. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So Nate shares in that blessing this morning as he read it aloud to us. And all of us share in this blessing this morning as we hear these words. And and those who keep it are triple blessed. Blessed, blessed, blessed are you if you hear these words and you keep these words. Revelation is full of blessings for God's people. That's God's view of this book. And to, to read this book, it's also helpful to understand that this is a type of literature. The Bible is written in various types of literature. This particular type of literature is apocalyptic literature. And nowadays, we associate that word apocalypse with the end of the world, the destruction of humanity. But the, the, the root of that word just used to mean more simply unveiling or uncovering. So apocalyptic literature is unveiling literature. It's uncovering literature. So in this genre of literature that Revelation is written in, what you see is previously hidden spiritual realities being unveiled by a heavenly messenger. So that messenger comes down from heaven and gives what? A a revelation of spiritual truths that have been previously hidden. Now, what spiritual truths does Revelation unveil? Just look at the first couple words. Revelation 1.1, it opens like this. The revelation of Jesus Christ. This is both a revelation of Jesus Christ and a revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, all of Scripture does that. All of Scripture reveals Jesus Christ, but this book reveals Jesus to us in a way that we could not understand unless he came down and told us about himself. We should love Revelation. It's a revelation of our Savior. It's Jesus telling us spiritual realities that we would not otherwise be able to know. It's it's kind of like God is handing us a backstage pass. He's taking us up on stage, and he's, he's pulling back the curtain, and he's showing us the set design. He's showing us how the special effects work. He's introducing us to the cast. He's introducing us to the crew, and He's introducing us to the author. He's introducing us to the main performer, the main character, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We are people who love to hear from Jesus. We are people who need to hear from Jesus. Therefore, we are people who love all of Scripture. We love the book of Revelation. As complicated as foreign as the imagery may seem, as disturbing as it may be at times, as many unanswered questions we may have, we dare not neglect this book. Revelation is for our blessing, and Revelation shows us Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's a good book. So I'm excited to share some of it with you this morning. 
All right. So in this text, we're reading apocalyptic literature, right? Revealing literature. So we expect a heavenly revelation of previously hidden spiritual realities. That's, that's what we have here. And in this case, Jesus Christ himself is the heavenly messenger. In our passage, Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking uh, throughout Revelation chapter 2 and then 3 to seven churches. He, he reveals himself. He reveals a spiritual reality about himself. He is walking among the churches, which are... Uh, symbolized by lampstands. So this this is a passage that is addressed to a real historical church in the first century. Uh, all of these churches were real cities, uh, located in real cities in uh, the ancient Near East. And to each church comes this divine message. Each of these messages follows a similar pattern. And, and our particular text is addressing a church in a city called Laodicea. That was in modern-day Turkey. I think it's helpful to know a few more things about Laodicea. First, they were a very wealthy city. They were located among major trade routes in the Holy Roman Empire. And uh, it wasn't the Holy Roman Empire by that point yet, but uh, in the Roman Empire. Um, And uh, they had a thriving economy exporting this famous eye medicine. They were a medical center. They had a famous eye salve. They had a highly desired wool cloth. It was a dark wool that was, was really popular. And so there was so much money coming in and exchanging hands, it was a financial center too. Now we can infer that not only was this a rich city, it was also a proud city, which usually goes hand in hand, doesn't it? In fact, a couple decades before Revelation was written, there was a fairly major earthquake and, and most of the city was leveled. I mean, get this, this is an example of independence and pride. Rome you know, the capital of this empire, came and offered to help Laodicea rebuild after the destruction. And the wealthy citizens of Laodicea turned the help down. They told Rome, no thank you, we will rebuild on our own. That is hard to imagine, that kind of wealth and independence. Just think about a city here in the United States. Imagine there's maybe a hurricane or, you know, uh, a tornado goes through, this picture, you know, you've got this destroyed city. Here comes FEMA, right? Here comes the Red Cross. And the city says, no, no, thank you. T- turn those trucks around. We're, we're good, thanks. We'll, we'll just rebuild on our own. You go help somebody else now. That is amazing independence. That is amazing self-sufficiency. So Laodicea was a wealthy city, and it was, we can infer, a proud, independent city. They were proud of how they had been able to get by without Rome's help. They were well-situated in every way except for one. I bet you can guess. They had no good water supply. No good water supply. They knew the value of good water because they lacked it. Laodicea had to pipe their water in from the next town. That water started out sourced from a famous hot spring and then traveled six miles through one of those Roman aqueducts all the way to their town. By the time the water got there, you can guess, it wasn't hot anymore. It was lukewarm and nasty. It was full of sediment, full of crusty deposits. It was gross water. So you've got this proud, independent, wealthy city with a poor, nasty water supply. And that is who Jesus is addressing in this revelation of spiritual truth. So let's look at Revelation 3.14, the first verse of our main text this morning. 
And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus is sharing his credentials. Here are words from the Amen, the one in whom all the promises of God to his people throughout the ages find their fulfillment. The one in whom every blessing of God is yes and amen. He's the one who's speaking. He's the faithful and true witness, the word made flesh from whose voice all things were made. He made the eye that Laodicean medicine was trying to heal. He made the wool that Laodicean economy was was built on. He was the one behind all their resources, all their power. He was the one behind all the resources of Rome, the entire empire. So this is the one who is speaking to these Christians in Laodicea, and he speaks to us this morning. Here's what he declares to them. Verse 15 and 16. I know your works. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. First, just just notice that opening phrase, I know your works. Jesus is talking about their works. What these people do shows their true character. Works cannot save us. Works cannot gain favor with God. But in God's sight, works can show where we stand before a holy God. It's true of us. We even have a common little parable about this. Actions speak louder than words, right? That is a biblical truth. What we do reveals who we truly are before God. And what uh, do the works of the Laodiceans show Jesus? Unfortunately, they show Jesus that they are displeasing to him. Jesus speaks of cold and hot as if they are both desirable. They are not cold and refreshing. They are not hot and soothing. They are lukewarm and nasty, like their poor water supply. How does Jesus feel like responding? In verse 16, we hear these famous words, I will spit you out of my mouth. We need to be disturbed by that this morning. Those are sobering words. It is possible to have works, to live a life that is disgusting to Jesus. And that word that he uses that's translated uh, spit is synonymous with vomit. Jesus is saying to this church, your works don't please me. Your works make me sick. Why are their works displeasing to him? Why does he say they're lukewarm? Jesus goes on in the next verse to identify the source of the problem. This is the the main declaration that Jesus has for the church at Laodicea. Uh, Kind of finishing out of uh, verse 16. I will spit you out of my mouth, verse 17, for, which we should read as because, I will spit you out of my mouth because... You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So why does Jesus want to vomit them out of his mouth? 
because they will not admit and live and respond in accordance to the truth of who they really are. They claim to be rich and prosperous and independent and self-sufficient, just like the, the city of Laodicea viewed itself in relation to Rome. But they are blind to the spiritual reality. That is not their relationship to God. Worldliness, idolatry, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness are detestable to the Savior. So that the declaration of Jesus Christ comes to this people and diagnoses and, and reveals the previously hidden spiritual reality. Here's the truth of Christ for them. You are wretched. That means you're afflicted and miserable. You are pitiable. If people saw you rightly, they should feel pity over you. You are poor. You're not rich. You're powerless. You're like a destitute beggar. You are blind. You don't even see your problems. You are sightless. You are deluded. Reality is hidden from you. But they're not hidden from Jesus. No. He says last, you are naked. That means bare, uncovered before his perfect sight. He says, I know your deeds, which means I know your heart. I know what you worship. I know what you do in secret. I know what you think in the back of your mind. They are not hidden from the sight of the one who sees all. This is the declaration of Christ to the Laodicean church. They are worse off than the man I described at the beginning who was sitting in the mud counting imaginary money. But sadly, the deeds and the attitude of this church is not unique at all, is it? We, we, we turned to Hosea next, and we heard the prophet denouncing the same type of delusional self-righteousness in Israel. Hosea 12.8, Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Very similar kind of declaration. Very similar kind of delusion that they are wealthy in and of themselves and that there is no iniquity in their labors. They think, we know our works. No sin there. I don't think that's God's opinion of Ephraim either. We humans are always tempted to find our satisfaction in human treasures, worldly treasures. Humans are always tempted to ignore and excuse their sin. This, this word from Jesus to the church in Laodicea applied to the people in Hosea's time. And it applies to us as well. We have to admit that like Laodicea, we live in a prosperous, independent nation. We live in a, a city that's proud of its accomplishments, proud of its rebuilding, proud of its status and importance. And each one of us is tempted often to self-righteous independence. So this declaration, this, this revelation of Jesus Christ is desperately needed. We need to hear it. We need to receive it. We need to accept it. And listen, if you will accept this word of reproof, 
if you will accept Christ's assessment of yourself, you are then ready to respond to Jesus in a way that is not lukewarm, not disgusting to him, but in a way that is pleasing to him, in the way that he desires. You don't have to be lukewarm. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and what? Repent. Those whom I love, I reprove. You hear that? If Jesus loves the church in Laodicea, he'll speak words of reproof. Words of reproof from Jesus are still words of love. These words of Jesus are light for our darkness. They are sanity for our madness. They are sight for our blindness. When we believe the amen, when we believe the faithful and true witness and respond in the way Jesus longs for, it looks like faith-filled repentance. The good news of this reproof is that that desperate repentance is pleasing to Jesus. Desperate repentance is more pleasing to Jesus than a cup of iced tea on a blazing July day. It's more pleasing to Jesus than a steaming cup of coffee on a cold, snowy morning. Repentance pleases our Savior. I know you want to please him. So come and agree with his testimony. Come and repent. So truly hearing and receiving the declaration of Jesus prompts a response that Jesus loves to hear. Something like this. You're you're right, Jesus. I'm wrong. I have nothing. You have everything. I am ruined. Come and save me. I am guilty. Come and forgive me. By your death, by your blood, come and cleanse me. I am sick and broken. Come and by your resurrection, heal me. Restore me. That's the kind of response to Jesus that is not lukewarm. That's the kind of response that Jesus loves to hear. Remember, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and you will not be lukewarm. You'll be pleasing in his sight. When you receive and respond to the declaration of Jesus rightly, you receive invitations from Jesus that defy description. So we've looked at Christ's declaration. This is who you are. We've looked at how we should respond to that declaration. Now, let's look at Christ's invitation. First, just look at the structure of this entire word. We've got nine total verses here. I'm I'm only going to be able to get through the first eight of them. But we've got one verse for Jesus to declare his credentials. We've got two verses declaring that the works of this church are nasty and lukewarm. We have one verse declaring the problem and the the assessment that Jesus has, his declaration of reality. 
That kind of moves quickly. But then Jesus slows down and he camps out for four more verses of promises and blessings and invitations and love. Remember, these are invitations and blessings to a church that is so far gone, it makes Jesus want to vomit. Yet he spends half of his message trying to win them back. This is the glorious pursuit of the bridegroom coming after his wayward bride. He just keeps coming and coming for her. Here's what he says to her first in verse 18. This is an invitation to her in Laodicea. It's an invitation to you this morning. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You hear the heart of Christ for his bride. He doesn't want her to be a beggar. He doesn't want her to be naked. He doesn't want her to be shamed. He doesn't want her to be sick and blind. Each of those invitations would have been especially meaningful to the Laodiceans. Remember, they were known for finance. Jesus offers them true spiritual riches. They were known for clothing and textiles. Jesus offers them true spiritual clothing, the righteousness of Christ. They were known for eye medicine. Jesus says, I have medicine for your blindness. I can cure your blindness. Jesus says, come to me. I have what you really need. We hear similar words of invitation in Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is only possible because of Christ's sacrifice on his bride's behalf. Because of the righteous life of Christ, because of the atoning death of Jesus on the cross, because of the triumphant victory of his resurrection, he can come and offer us this invitation to come to him. Come and receive. Come and ask for help. Come and ask for riches, for clothing, for food, for medicine, real riches, real medicine, real clothing. It lasts forever. Jesus invites us to come to him for everything we need forever. And second, Jesus reminds us that he speaks to us in love. Verse 19, those who I love, I reprove. Even the reproof of Christ is a loving invitation to repent. Even the reproof are words of love inviting us to repent. And then third, in verse 20, Jesus invites us to dinner. Behold, 
I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. How close is Jesus to you right now? Where does Jesus position himself in relation to you? Listen, even if to this point, even if to this moment you have been lukewarm and detestable to Jesus, even if this morning he threatens to vomit you out of his mouth, he positions himself very near to you. He is not far off. No, he's just on the other side of the door of repentance. Accept his declaration to you. You respond in repentance. He's right there. Jesus is that close, like on the other side of a door. That's, he's no further away than that. The moment we open that door of repentance by faith, Jesus comes in and fills the table with a feast and sits down and says, come, sit next to me. Let's share fellowship. Come be my beloved companion. It's a beautiful invitation. It's a beautiful invitation. Jesus, the amen, the author of creation, wants to sit down and eat dinner with you. He has come to be near you. I think it's really helpful to understand that picture in light of Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, 36 says, exhorts us to be like servants who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So this is is a helpful picture. The servants are inside. The master of the house has been away for a while. He comes home and he knocks on his own door. This is his house. Those servants, therefore, are doing a good job only if they open the door right away and let their master in immediately. That's a helpful way to view Jesus knocking on the door. Verse 37, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, this is the master, the master will dress himself for service and have them recline a table and he will come and serve them. This is a a picture of role reversal. The master comes home. He's pleased to have the door open for him right away. And he sends the servants to the table and he brings the food over. When we encounter that similar picture in Revelation 3, I don't think we should picture Jesus as like a homeless vagabond, you know, looking for a lodging for the night. That that doesn't seem to jive with, with Luke 12. I think we should picture Jesus as knocking on the door as the master who deserves to be let into his own home. And then he comes and serves the servants. He eats with his servants. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, right? Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very form of a servant. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that he could invite you to dinner. And if that dinner invitation were not enough, let's briefly consider one more. Verse 20 pictures Jesus coming to us. But then verse 21 pictures Jesus bringing us to himself in the most incredible way imaginable. 
the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This is, this is just mind-boggling. I mean, just, just try to picture this with me. Jesus invites us into the throne room of the universe where he shares his father's authority, he shares his father's throne, and he says, come on up here with me. I made some room for you. This is the best seat of the house. I want you to have it with me. Come and share my joy. Come and share my authority. Come experience my rule right here, right next to me. That that kind of invitation is beyond words. There's nothing better than enjoying him forever, than experiencing him forever. I honestly think this entire passage, this this Revelation 3 word to the church in Laodicea, uh, really pictures the entire Christian life. The, The entire Christian life consists of receiving the declarations of Jesus and responding to them in the way that Christ prescribes in faith, responding in repentance, and then receiving and enjoying the beautiful invitations of Christ. That's kind of what the whole Christian life is about. Receiving the declarations of Jesus, responding to them in faith and repentance, and then enjoying the invitation of Jesus for the rest of eternity. But you cannot receive the invitation of Christ until you receive the declaration of Christ, right? So let me just close by asking, have you done that? Are you continually doing that? Listen, friends, if, if, if repentance is not part of your regular spiritual life, you should be concerned about that based on this text. I don't think that's healthy. You need to talk to someone you trust ASAP and learn with them, how can I make repentance part of my life before God? So let me ask you, do you agree with the faithful and true witness that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked? Do you come to him regularly, desperate for his provision? Longing for his healing? Are you continually repenting of your lukewarm self righteousness, your lukewarm prayerlessness, your lukewarm worldliness? Listen, there, there's no sin sickness that Christ empowered repentance cannot cure. There is no sin sickness that Christ-empowered repentance cannot cure. This invitation stands for every single one of you and every person you meet because of the power of the death and resurrection of our Savior. By faith, brothers and sisters, do you regularly Open the door to the master and receive his invitation to come in with 
you and eat with you and to seat you on his throne for all eternity. Let's hear the declaration of Christ. Let's respond and then let's receive the invitation of Christ. Let's pray.